The following podcast is brought to you by the Santa Monica College Associates, the SMC Associates, enhancing student excellence. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. We've had two inches of rain in the space of 36 hours, so we are told the danger of fire is low. The Lakers won uh, against Portland. And the literary series begins again (laughs) at Santa Monica College. My pen dry, which as I understand in Thai means don't worry, everything is fine. The universe is back in its usual balance of craziness and excitement. My name is Hari Vishwanada. I teach in the English department at Santa Monica College, and I also help organize this event every semester. But it's made really possible by a lot of people who work behind the scenes. Um, I'm just the one face of it all. It's a multi-face, uh, multi-hand operation. I first of all want to thank uh, the event staff, Carol and Kyle and Jeff and the others, who helped organize this room so that we can communicate with one another and they help in the podcasting so that those of you who are interested can listen to it on the web uh, weeks, months later. I also want to thank uh, the Community Relations Office, uh, the former, the person who was formerly in charge, Judy Nouveau, has recently retired, and she's succeeded by an equally capable uh, Mr. Ramin and his associate, Uh, Stephanie, both of them help organize and take care of the logistical details of this event so that we are here at the right time in the right place. I also want to thank, uh, this is a time uh, when we thank everybody, including the Oscars, right? I also want to thank the SMC associates who make this possible uh, every semester uh, by generously agreeing to say yes to everything we ask for because they still don't know the meaning of no, and we want to keep it that way. But really, ultimately, I want to thank all of you in the audience who show up every semester, month after month, to listen to wonderfully exciting writers, creative talents that we have in our community. It's because of you we are able to go to the associates and say, look, we have a wonderful lineup of speakers, and we can guarantee there will be an interested and enthusiastic audience. And so they are happy to support us. So I encourage all of you to sign up to uh, support the SMC Associates. I'm very happy to welcome Faith Adili, who is just your typical Nigerian, Nordic, American girl. Nothing unusual there. Yeah, she calls herself the first Obama. She has worked as a diversity trainer, community activist, and has taught travel writing and creative writing from Bali to Switzerland to Ghana. Uh, She is a local person who doesn't travel much, right? As teacher of writing at California College of the Arts in San Francisco and Oakland, she has published her memoir about becoming the first black Buddhist nun of Thailand, Meeting Faith, which received the Penn Beyond Margins Award for Best Memoir. 
poetry is widely published in various publications, and I want to share with you an excerpt from her memoir, Meeting Faith. How do I begin to explain that though I live the role more seriously than anything in my life, being a Buddhist nun actually had little to do with being a Buddhist or with being a nun. It was about hacking a difficult path through the jungle, clawing my way from one paradigm to another. The change was the journey itself, and anyone can get there down any trail. This is specifically the story of a silent girl who threw off an overcoat and stripped away everything underneath. A new kind of traveler, the hungry American who set out in search of faith without a map. The sarcastic American who used a journal to write her way through the trees to a new self. It has taken me all this time, more than a decade, to understand the strange decision made one afternoon in the dreaming shade of a Thai temple as pale butterflies knocked against my warming flesh. Despite arising from failure, my decision was an act of resistance, of downright defiance. I chose life. And in telling the tale, I choose it still. Faith Adili. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> Forgot I had written that and I was going to cry. I'm a little hungover and a little sleepy, but also, wow. <laughs> thank you for giving my words back to me. Um, and thank you so much, uh, Hari and Raman, for um, all of the preparations and bringing me here. Um, how many of you are here because you're interested in writing? Okay. How many because you're interested in becoming Buddhist nuns? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, multicultural issues, mixed families, new America, first generation college. Any other reason? So it's helpful for me to know who's in the audience. Any of you long lost cousins of mine I haven't met? That often happens at workshops as well and readings. So if you are my cousin or want to be, please see me afterwards and uh, we can fill out forms and make it happen. Um, so I, again, since I'm African, I like to do call and response. And so I'm gonna just tell you a little bit about my journey and then I'll do some reading, um, show a little short clip from the PBS documentary. But I hope if at any point you have a question, you interrupt me because I really like to have a conversation more than like a big old speech. I did, you know, I, I failed out of college. So I like, I like education that's experiential. Um, but then also do Q&A at the end, but don't feel that you have to hold off on anything or if there's something you don't understand. So um, I was told that the talk is Flying Ebos, African, Asian, and American Journeys, so, which is the, talk of, the name of a talk I gave at some point. So I'm trying to figure out, like, what was that talk about? What was I trying to talk about? But I think almost, um, ooh, am I too loud? Okay, I'm okay. Um, so I think I'll just talk a little bit about the journeys. I mean, most of the writing I do is a personal narrative. It's um, travel writing, it's memoir. Um, I actually started calling it travel writing in hopes that people would actually pay me money to go someplace and travel. Um, so I was like, yeah, I'm a travel writer. But that didn't really quite work. But I think almost every story has to do with some sort of travel. And I'm also very much influenced in, I'm very much interested in how kind of larger public historical events impact families and vice versa. And so um, I grew up in Washington State in a small, a uh, small rural town in the, in the southeast. And my parents had both been first-generation college students. My mother's the daughter 
of Finnish and Swedish immigrants. And my father is um, Nigerian from the Igbo tribe. And so he had been sent to the West to become educated in preparation for Nigeria's coming independence from Britain. And my mom had just been so nerdy, they couldn't figure out what to do with her, so they sent her to college as well. And they became the first interracial couple uh, in their college campus. It was during civil rights, it was during African independence, and they thought that slowly the world was remaking, themselves, or it was remaking itself and they would be involved one dinner party at a time. Um, when my uh, grandparents heard about um, my mother's relationship, uh, they separated them and my mom was sent to a college 500 miles away um, and eventually my father then moved to Canada and my mom became pregnant and was sent away to a home for unwed mothers so that's where I was born um, and then my father went home to Nigeria and that's when the Civil War broke out and we thought he had been killed and so my mother eventually reconciled with her parents and that's when we moved to their farm in Washington State and I began my life as your typical Ni Nigerian Nordic little farm girl which was great in my born-again religious Republican town so my my biggest my biggest thing about growing up was I had to get out of my hometown uh, I knew I didn't have money to I, I knew I didn't have money, so I knew I had to do well in school so I could get a scholarship to get out of town. Um, but I also knew uh, that there were these exchange programs. So every year I would go down to the local Rotary Club and I'd be like, am I old enough to be an exchange student? Am I old enough to be an exchange student? So um, eventually, at age 16, I became an exchange student. And um, they told me that uh, they were going to send me to Thailand, which I had never heard of. Um, but apparently people, it, that was back before like Pad Thai and all that stuff, like nobody was going to Thailand at this point, just, you know, like Europeans, but no Americans. And so um, I went to Thailand, had an amazing year there, uh, which really kind of transformed my life. Um, and then came back, graduated and went to, um, went to Harvard on scholarship. And when I was there, I had incredible culture shock going from the, from the West to the East Coast being a scholarship student, which everyone would, you know, say stuff to you like, oh, you're only here because of affirmative action. Um, just being in Boston itself, uh, the culture there was really, really difficult for me, and I was doing poorly in school, and so I flunked out and uh, somehow had, had the wherewithal to go back to Thailand uh, on a study program to kind of lick my wounds and kind of recover myself. Um, so while I was there, um, everybody was supposed to be doing a research project and uh, the, per the person, one of the guys I was hanging out with said, oh, I'm going to study Buddhist monks and then at the end of my trip, I'm going to ordain as a Buddhist monk. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. I wish I had thought of that. So I said, well, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to become a Buddhist nun. And everyone started laughing at me and said, no one becomes a Buddhist nun. So then, of course, I knew I must become a Buddhist nun. And uh, I would, you know, come up with the definitive study of all Buddhist nuns and then I would go back to Thailand I mean, I would go back to Harvard and I would like deliver my astounding findings in like a giant hall such as this and everybody would be really sorry for how they had treated me. So that was my plan. And so um, I found a temple that seemed really amazing in the forest that was doing kind of, uh, the nuns there were doing things that I hadn't seen before. It was like forest tradition. So I went there, um, I signed up, I didn't pay attention to what the small print was. And after I had ordained, I found out that this was a forest temple in the, tr in the you know, forest tradition, which is like an ascetic return to the Buddha's way of living. So vow silence, one meal a day, no shoes, no money, 19 hours of meditation. I had never meditated. 
Um, and I thought I was there with my notebook to do research and found out I couldn't talk to anyone. So that was really the moment where the shit hit the fan. And um, the head nun said, if I tell you what we're doing, you'll forget it. But if I show you and you touch it for yourself, you'll always remember. And if, any, and if at the end of your time here, any woman wants to break her silence long enough to be interviewed by you, that's fine. Does that seem fair? And so I said, okay, that seems fair. So that project, which started as an anthropology project, switched to a personal project. And I had this journal, and so I was keeping, I was studying myself, I was monitoring myself, I was writing like, oh, the subject had really bad meditation today. Oh, the subject is completely undisciplined. The subject spent all of her time, you know, daydreaming about sex and chocolate chip cookies. Um, and these charts, which are in the book, actually helped me kind of keep myself going through something that was completely foreign and difficult to me. So when I worked on this book, I had my journals, and if you've seen Meeting Faith, this is me, and this is the Buddha, um, in the margins are my journal entries, uh, because I wanted to kind of show the daily sort of um, ragged progression towards changing your life, how difficult it is. And so the journal entries are there, and then in the middle is memoir, um, and we could talk about the purpose of that, what happens in memoir and what happens in journal, journal entries. So that's how I worked on this piece. Um, at the end of the year, I came back. I, I, I wrote a thesis about Buddhist nuns. I graduated from university um, and was going to go back to Sri Lanka. Um, and then the war in Sri Lanka broke out. And out of the blue, my scholarship was changed to Nigeria, and which kind of seemed like a sign. I had not heard from my father since age 12. He had stopped writing to me at age 12. I'd heard he had become a famous politician, but I didn't know anything about him. Um, and I became really obsessed with the idea that maybe I had siblings, because I'm my mother's only child, and she's white, and whenever we go out together, no one recognized us. And so I thought I might have siblings in Nigeria, and here the scholarship just landed uh, on my lap. Maybe I should go. So um, at age 26, I went to Nigeria for the first time under one of the worst military regimes in Nigerian history, um, So, which was a blast, <laughs> and all sorts of kind of traumatic things happened. But um, from that experience, I became really interested. When I was about to go, my mother sent me my father's love letters that they had had when they had been separated from each other. So I became really interested in seeing how kind of politics had shaped what they had done. They really thought, like, all the decisions they made were based on kind of their responsibility of being first-generation college students, of being civil rights pioneers and all that sort of thing. So I was really interested in kind of seeing the legacy of that history. So I went to Nigeria, um, met my siblings, you know, got captured by the military, did all sorts of things like that, came back, and I was trying to write poems about this. And um, f about four generations of family on three continents, and my friends had an intervention, and they said, your poems give us headaches, and we, you need to use sentences and you need to stop drinking coffee. You need to stop drinking caffeine. So that's when I switched and I discovered creative nonfiction and memoir. And so that's when I moved out of poetry and tried to find a genre that would allow me to kind of incorporate family stories and photographs and history and all the sort of thing that I'm you know, interested in now. Um, and so I think that's pretty much the background that you need to know about me. Um, when I was working on this, PBS contacted me and asked me if I wanted to do a documentary. And so we went to Nigeria a second time, 12 years later, um, to meet, um, meet my siblings as adults. And they were interested in doing a film that showed how what happens out in the world impacts the United States. So they focused on a Vietnamese family that came here after the fall of Saigon, focused on my family who came here after, uh, during African independence, and they focused on a Mexican family and kind of our tortured relationship with the border. Um, 
And so I think I'll just show a short clip from that. That kind of sets up some stuff, and then I'll, and then I'll read a bit. Any questions so far? Am I making any sense? Little sense? <laughs> OK. Perfectly, Perfectly clear. <laughs> Any questions from that? You are quiet, people. Oh, yeah. No. Oh, I've been married for ten, 11 months. <laughs> Thank you. I got married last April Fool's Day. So <laughs> for real. <laughs> so, but I'm a, I'm a great godmother and auntie and available. For parties and bar mitzvahs, so. <laughs> but no, I'm interested in collecting family that already exists there, not creating new family. So I'm always going and looking for ancestors and relatives. You know, finding people in Finland and Sweden, finding my Nigerian family, and not interested in making new family, like children at all. So, any other questions? So when trying to combine two different cultures, how to kind of deal with the conflicts? <laughs> yes, very different values. Um, yeah, it used to be funny. Whenever I would tell people that I was Nigerian and Finnish, they'd be like, oh my gosh, how can that be? How can that be? And I'd be like, well, you know, like a man and a woman, they, you know, it's not that hard. But <laughs> once you know a lot of Nigerians and you know a lot of Finns, you're like, how can that be? How can that be? Because <laughs> like one group talks all the time and is like so empowered and other group is like so shy. And so it's, it's so interesting um, in terms of, yeah, figuring out your value system, how you're going to be. For me, a lot of it, well, going to Thailand was a key, a key moment because I was looking for a place. I was always looking for a place where I fit in. Like I said, there, you know, where will be this creature that speaks, you know, that's Nordic and Nigerian who will look like me? And I didn't find that. Find that. And so, like, going in Thai, to Thailand just kind of meant something completely different. I was just kind of this brown creature, and, they, and there weren't any expectations. When I lived, uh, my first year, I lived up in Chiang Rai, which was this tiny town, and whenever I would walk out on the streets, everyone would, like, rush out and like point at me in the whole village and they'd be like, what are you? And I'd say, y you know, I'm American. They're like, we've seen Americans on TV. They don't look like you. So then I'd say, well, I'm, a, you know, a Nigerian Nordic American. And they'd be like, please to explain. So, you know, explain. And they'd be like, that's great. They had no expectations or fantasies of what that was. They would just say, okay, you're this new hybrid creature. And they would think it was great and they would leave me alone. And so that year was so crucial for me kind of repairing myself because here I felt like I was always being asked to choose um, you know if you're if you're going to be or with women's issues we can't talk about race if you're going to be with the black power movement you can't talk about gender if you identify as white you're going to make the black person unhappy if you identify as you know black it, are you going to identify as Nigerian or African-American if you're with Nigerians you have to pick which tribe you know so I always felt that there were these the way we talk about it in the West is so either or and I felt like in Thailand everything's both and things are good and bad you're happy and sad um, plus, there, weren't, there wasn't this great polarization. And so it was easier for me to get a sense of who I was, regardless of what people projected onto me or what they expected of me. So when I came back and people said you had to choose, I would say no. 
or they'd say, you're this, and I'd say, no. I would just, I had the strength to kind of refuse it and kind of, you know, start to switch the conversation the way I wanted. And then starting to write about it then helped create this space, because the more I would talk about my story, then somebody else would call me up and be like, you know, I know, you know, I'm like that too, or I've had this experience, or I grew up here and there, or I don't look like the way, like my internal identity doesn't match my external, or my, my family's first generation and my parents want me to be like this, but now I'm in America and so I have different values. And so you find more people like you and you kind of create a new tribe of people who are wrestling with the same issues. So at least you don't feel so alone and you're trying to figure it out. Um, and you can find ways to translate to your parents like, okay, I'm not going to be a doctor, but I'm going to go to a really good school so you don't have to worry about me being a writer. <laughs> you know, so am I making sense a little bit? Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, okay. So you're not saying that you yourself are necessarily a mixture. Okay, right. There's the, there's the internal stuff. How do you decide wh what you're going to be, and then how do you communicate to other people what, means to you, what matters to you? Yeah, and one of the ways, like when I first, before I became a writer, I was doing this uh, community work, and I was working with, uh, in these international collectives, training students to do social justice work. And I found that before we could even start to do some work about some sort of oppression, we had to understand each other. And the way we did it is through telling stories. You know, you would say, this is where my family comes from, and this was a transformative moment in my life, and this is why this thing matters to me. And I thought, oh, personal narrative, personal storytelling is really important to any work we want to do. It's not stories just aren't over here. And so first I was doing it that way, working with different groups. Like, if we're going to make a decision on consensus based on some sort of you know, problem in the community. We all have to kind of talk about where we come from and what we value and how we make decisions. And, you know, voting isn't just always the way with a, like, single majority. Like, how do we make it, how does everyone feel like their voice has been heard and their values have been heard when we're trying to transform society? And then I just took that into the classroom, too, of oftentimes we don't know why we feel strongly about something or we don't know whether we're willing to change or, the, or you know, until we start telling these stories. And so... I use writing for a lot of that, or just kind of storytelling. Um, and I think that helps people get to a, a greater understanding, you know, as opposed to like, why don't you want to do it my way? And Americans are so kind of, let's just vote. And like, vote doesn't do anything, particularly if like 51 people say yes and 49 people say no. 49 people are really unhappy and haven't been heard, you know. So if storytelling gets closer to kind of working out these things that matter to us. Yeah, I had actually stopped writing. Like, I had written all the time as a kid, and my mom was like, she's going to be a poor poet. I'm down with it, whatever. Um, so we were all prepared for that. And then when I got to college, it felt indulgent to be using a Harvard degree to be a writer. And so I was studying other things. I was studying social service. And I also, I mean, social sciences. And I also wanted to be trained in a different discipline so I could bring that into my writing. Um, but I got so traumatized, I stopped writing. I had nothing to say for, like, the first two years that I was there. And it was only in flunking out, going to Thailand and being so, you know, stimulated. You know how stimulated you are when you travel and you're outside of your normal environment. You know, you're journaling just to remember, remember who you are, but also just to kind of record all the stimuli. And then I thought, oh, I'm not dumb. You know, I still care about things. I still have a lot to say. So I started writing again in Thailand 
I'm filling all these journals and then having the experience, that really put me back together. Because when you strip everything away and it's just you and your bald head in a hut for 19 hours a day having to sit there with your thoughts, you really figure out what matters and what's essentially you versus what other people tell you are. Um, and so that put me back together and that happened, you know, it happened in the journal since I couldn't talk to anybody. So it put me back together as a person and it also brought me back as a writer. Mm. They did. I had enough to, to do my senior thesis, um, and I mention a couple of them in the book. Um, it was great because one of the reasons I was drawn to nuns is, you know, when everyone told me I couldn't interview them, they had nothing to say, what people would say is like, broken heart, broken home. Broken heart, broken home. That's the only way they could understand why a woman would choose a spiritual career. And so I was like, there's got to be more to it. So I would talk to these women. I'd say, why did you choose this career that's really looked down on? Oftentimes you're hungry. You're like in the worst part of the temple. Your families turn their back on you. Why would you choose this? And they would say, I've never felt more free. And I thought, I don't understand what freedom means then, you know, because I'm here on a scholarship and I can move and I can travel. And when I travel, it feels almost like I'm running away. Um, what is freedom? And so they would say, you know, this is just my body, but in here I've never been more free. And so I became really interested in that. And that's a lot of the stuff that we talked about, their journey, how they had chosen to become a nun, what they had gone through, what freedom, what mental freedom felt like. Um, so their stuff was really, really interesting. And I think it was really helpful. It was clear that it was helpful that they had seen me struggle to be a nun, clothes falling off, didn't know what I was doing, mosquito bites all over my head and face. You know, they saw me working hard and failing and still working hard. So when I asked them, they gave me really kind of authentic, kind of raw stories. Um, and then they wanted to ask me too, like, what are you doing here? What's your story? What, you know, kind of what led you to this? Uh, so it was really instructive and I felt that there was this connection that had nothing to do with, that they were in this kind of weird space, you know, because like if you're a monk, you're, you know, you don't pay taxes, you're deified, it's clear who you are in society. If you're a nun, it's not clear, you know, it's like, you know, are you an ordained woman, are you not? Uh, they have this weird kind of, you know, status and I felt that I could relate to that too as someone who was mixed and who was trying to create her world that I could relate to them that well. I could understand them, I could translate their stories better. And that was one of the things that um, my advisor had told me, he said, you know, Westerners make the mistake of coming into a place, studying people, right, you know, you go back and you think you've, you know, you figure them out and that this is the, the study. And he said, you know, you're asking them a sociological question, why are you doing this? And they're responding with a, in a spiritual language and you don't speak that language. So if you're going to attempt to tell their story, one, you're going to have to try to live their lives, and two, to really tell someone's story, you have to have something at risk as well. And so the more I was in that world, the more I felt that I could connect to their lives, and I think they felt that way as well. And so I got really, I got good stories. <laughs> okay, yes, part two. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> um, okay, so the, so the memoir is kind of me, what led me to this moment. So what the expectations were, how I crashed and burned, how that was so kind of devastating for someone who's always, whose identity has been to be a good student to like fail, to like fail at an epic scale, to fail with a scholarship at Harvard with everybody in your hometown looking at you, like fail, fail, you know? And so um, it was kind of, we had to get me into the situation to start with 
and then we had to, you know, kind of put me back together. And so you get the quest. The book starts with the quest. Um, and then I'm there, and I'm just learning that this temple is not what I thought it was going to be. I have no idea how to do this. And so we just start with the baby steps. And so the reader is there with me, seeing me try to figure out how to meditate, how to keep my clothes on, how to this, how to that, the charts, the questions, all that sort of thing. And I even refer to myself. as like there's a shift, like look at what the subject is doing. Oh, look at when the, you know, when the subject is focusing, she meditates well, you know. And so that's there. I wanted there to be a lot of different access points. Um, so there's the anthropological self, there's the personal self, because the deeper you go into meditation, the more kind of stuff from your past gets called up too. So we go deeper into that, um, more into the family stuff. Um, and then I have my interactions with other nuns as well. So it's been called like part anthropology, part comedy, part memoir, part, you know, so because the experience was so kind of multiplicity, is multiplicitous the word? the word? I don't know. But I wanted it to be rich because there are many different things that are happening. Does that answer your question? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of it was just the culture shock. So it was actually easier to go to Thailand and to Nigeria than it was to go from the rural northwest to the urban northeast. Um, part of it was my naivete because, like, my parents had been, you know, in that idealistic 60s generation. So that was like, when you go to college, you all are going to try to figure out how to change the world and it's going to be great. And my peers were all like, I need to get that on my resume so I can, like, go be an investment banker in New York. And I'm like, what? That's not what education is for. So there was this thing that we were not connecting with. There was the whole thing of those of us who were on scholarship were perceived as affirmative action. We didn't get in on our own merits. We had just been somehow just let in. And um, people would say that to our faces all the time. There was the dangerous terrain of Boston itself, which was I referred to a little bit in the film, which was split up by um, territory. And I did witness uh, a racial murder. I'd gone to work with Laotian refugees who had been resettled in a white area and right when I got there in the subway, a black man was thrown in front of the train and run over. Um, and nobody, they just said, well, it served him right. He shouldn't have been here. So that was really traumatic for me as an 18-year-old to see. Um, and so just things like that. And then just, you know, I had been at the top of my school, but, you know, I'd been like the number one student in school all my life. And then I get to a place where everybody has been the valedictorian. There are 1,600 of us who had been valedictorians. Like, someone's going to be on the bottom. So, me. <laughs> so there was that, too. Just like the, I didn't have the preparation. You know, I was smart, but I didn't know how to study and prepare in the way that, you know, the other students did. So they're just, you know, kind of everything was just, um, and then there was this pressure, like, you know, which groups are you going to affiliate? What are your politics going to be? So does that answer it? Um, just from just from the groups, like you know, like I did, I, I I joined the Black Students Union, and then I would bring up issues of violence towards women, and they'd say, gender issues aren't Black issues. Like, shut up, you know. And then I would join the women's group, and I'd be like, I'm a little kind of 
uncomfortable with some kind of the class and race stuff that's happening here? Can we talk about it? And they'd be like, if you want to talk about that stuff, go and join the black students stuff. Like, we're women, therefore we can't be racist. We're already victims. And I'd be like, whoa, okay. So it's just like nobody, I mean, everyone's young and everybody's involved in their identity politics, and so they just weren't willing to hear other things. And so I just, I didn't have the language to say anything other than, you're stupid. But I, you know, I was like, I think it's more complex than this, but I don't have any language to talk about it. So that's what it was, because I was just like, but look at me, I can't split any of this stuff off. This is just, you know, these are all organic to who I am, but that conversation wasn't happening yet. And so I, it felt really, yeah, I just felt like I couldn't be seen fully. Uh, probably when I crashed and burned <laughs> and fell out. It was it was the it was the Thailand thing. It was the going to Thailand then reminded me of the way I'd been raised. You know, you know, my family had always been outside, and I'd always been trained to stick up for the underdog and fight for what's right. And you know, we weren't popular in our hometown. Everyone thinks it was hard for me to grow up in rural Washington State because I was black. No, it was because I, you know we were Democrats, <laughs> we were union organizers, we were um, you know atheists. So all of that made it made it hard. So my family had always been outside and I'd always been cool with that, but I thought that things would be different when I went to college and so I was so kind of, I was like, you know, after 18 years of like not fitting in, I had hoped there would be a place where I would. And then I thought, well, you know, you make your own place. So once I had the strength to put myself back together in Thailand, I came back, did very well at school and was able to just kind of do what I wanted and, re and re remembered that like you define who you are, not what other people see you as and project onto you. And you just have to have maybe one other person who understands that, <laughs> you know, and, you, and you're good to go. <laughs> so, thanks. Yeah. I was at Harvard 82 to 87. Right. Yeah, Boston was still traumatized from that busing and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, which, you know, I didn't, I didn't even know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't know that because I just I knew the historical stuff. Right. Exactly. And you know, you read you read about Boston like its role in the abolitionist movement and stuff, and they're always telling you about that. We were abolitionists, you know. So you're like, oh, and everyone's you know who's gone there for vacation thinks it's great. Right. Yeah. There's a whole huge class thing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I was so naive. I didn't know any of that stuff. So I just thought I was going to find my peeps. But, yeah. Uh, that's a good question. The disconnecting from American culture opened me up broadly to more who I, who I was. I think so, because I had been raised fairly internationally. You know, I had been raised with all sorts of, you know, we celebrated uh, religious holidays from all around the world. I was very aware of the fact that I was African. Uh, you know, yeah, we paid attention to pretty much every, every region of the world. Um, and then... I think that kind of got lost. Like when I when I arrived in Boston, people expected me to be African American or Black American, whatever that was, which I was talking about. I had no idea what that was, other than you know whatever civil rights stuff that I had studied as a child. Um, and so, I think it did kind of open me up. Also, then just leaving the U.S., I was like, oh, not everybody defines race and identity the way we do here. It doesn't have to, you know, they don't necessarily have the same legacy, so it doesn't have to be the way it is here. And that is helpful and allows you to connect with other people. Like I teach a class called Coming of Age Around the World at my college and it was all, I had all international or foreign born students in it. And 
you know, because they were looking for themselves, but then they started saying, like, there was this group of, like, I think Korean, yeah, Korean and Chinese girls who were like, oh my God, African moms are just like Asian moms. And like, I mean, people were like seeing connections, you know, that are global. It's not just about your own small group. And that's really helpful to see like, oh, we all wrestle with those parents. You know, you know, all that, the first generation struggle, no matter where you come from, is always the same. You know, your parents are like, what? We came all the way from blah, 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 so you could study what? You know, so there's, the, you know, so there's, are, there are these similarities that it's helpful when you look globally as opposed to just nationally. So, great. Okay. So I think I'll read a little. Um, th so this is, um, this is the first chapter of my new memoir, which isn't out and has been writing itself for years and years and years. Uh, it's called Twins, Growing Up Nigerian, Nordic American. And so it's going to continue what happened in the PBS documentary, and it's really going to follow four generations of family in Nigeria, in Scandinavia, and in the U.S. Um, and so, I've, you know, there have been lots of bits of it published here and there in, in O and Essence, and that's how I got the PBS documentary. But I, now I finally have the first chapter, and it just came out in this anthology called Dismantle, an anthology of writing from the Vona Writing Workshop. And this, in the summers, I teach with this Vona Workshop. It's up at Berkeley, and it's uh, a multi-genre workshop for writers of color. So we have uh, graphic essay, travel writing, memoir, fiction, poetry, all these sorts of things. Uh, application deadline coming up March 15th. Uh, so it's one of my favorite organizations, and we just came out with our first anthology. And so that chapter's in there, um, if I can find it. And I'm kind of trying to talk about how do you write your own story when information has been lost, or if your family doesn't want to talk about it. Um, in my case, being born in a home for unwed mothers, my mother was never allowed to talk about it, so she didn't have any memory of anything. So when the time came that she was willing to tell me, there wasn't much she could remember to tell me. And that's often the case, too. If you're the first writer in your family, your family might be like, you want to do what about what? You want to tell who what? And so there are always those issues. I just gave a talk up in AWP in Seattle about the difficulty of writing about family or the joys and challenges of writing about family. So this is about me kind of trying to imagine what happened. It's called Twinning and begins with an epigraph from Chinua Achebe. The world in which we live has its double and counterpart in the realm of spirits. Indeed, the human being is only half, and the weaker half of that, of a person. A man lives here, and his chi spirit double there. Until I was born, I was a twin. At least that's how the OB palpating my mother's abdomen was preparing to explain the length of her uterus, the fact that a short girl was carrying so high. Holly, a ponytailed college sophomore with cheeks as rosy plump as any baby's, shifted on the sticky vinyl and chuckled. My father, Magnus, was also short. Only five foot four, Holly told the doctor, at this point in the pregnancy, savvy enough not to look anyone in the eye. He's a graduate student from Nigeria. A Negro, the doctor blurted, not quite sure which was more surprising, that this baby-faced girl with her odd Nordic vowels was admitting to miscegenation or the height of the fetus. My mother nodded. She was used to this part. It had started 18 months ago, eyes either widening or narrowing at Washington State University's sole interracial couple. Holly and Maggie were, in fact, the only interracial couple they knew, this among 10,000 students. But strangers weren't the problem. Just a few months ago, she'd lain down on the living room of her father's house and resolved never to get up. She recalled the rough scratch of carpet against her cheek. The rug, sculpted gray wall to wall, swirled in dizzy circles beneath her, nubbly to the touch, as she'd reviewed her situation, home for the summer and knocked up. A white girl with a black fetus, a 19-year-old college student, the first in her family of immigrants to have made it past high school. 
Her college career, a ticket out of a future of annual pregnancies and a laconic farmer husband, was officially over. That morning, her father had stopped her tuition payment. Tell your daughter, he'd roared at his, to his wife, that I will throw her out of the house, out of this goddamn family itself. Holly felt a bit, bit like one of those tragic letters in True Confessions magazine. It was junior high, and she and her best friend had squealed over lurid accounts of the perils awaiting the modern girl. Dear True Confessions, the reader letters always began, I never thought I would be writing to you. So many girls despairing across America. But now, what would her own letters say? Dear True Confessions, I don't remember much, just a few images, Papa shouting, ears and throat purple, Michael Vano slamming his door, all adolescent angst at such a sister, IT hurrying soft whispers from room to room, Tati Rauha twittering nervous in the background, Uncle John glued to the television screen, secretly relishing Papa's discomfort, I'm sure, and me down on the floor, the quiet one for once. Can you imagine? Back at the clinic, the doctor had stopped palpating for limbs and pressed instead his stethoscope against her tight skin. He glanced at the stalled clock above the two metal folding chairs away from the green examination table that bled stuffing through several gashes, then announced, twins, perhaps. And Holly, who would spend her pregnancy as she had spent most of her life, with a book like a shield before her, lowered her latest paperback and finally looking at him, gasped. It was the winter of 1962 when white journalist John Howard Griffin's account of medically darkening his skin in order to masquerade as a Negro through the segregated South was climbing the bestseller charts. Hmm, my mother scoffed. It took a white man to tell white America the truth about black America. Griffin himself scoffed at how white liberals sought him out based on a few weeks of blackness rather than listen to the actual residents of black America. The irony was not lost on Holly, daughter of newly middle-class Americans, now busy disowning her because of the dark fetus lengthening inside her. My mother read about white bus drivers who drove Griffin miles out of his way, about the constant threat of violence from unfriendly whites and the sexual demands from the seemingly friendly, about the difficulty of finding a job that wasn't menial, a place to pee, a safe bed in which to rest. Her breath rasped asthmatic irregular through the cold examination room. She read fierce, stirring, and already cramped belly about the two countries Griffin inhabited, returning to whiteness when he thought he would lose either his mind or his life. After his story was published, his effigy was hanged in the center of his hometown, a half-black, half-white dummy with a yellow streak painted down its back. Holly herself had never seen an interracial baby. The doctor eyed the tower of charts rising from the gray metal folding table and shook, it, shook his head. Neither had he. All he could say was that it was uncommonly long in the womb, the number of knobs he could grip indeterminate, the fetal heart sounds muddled. My mother's eyes not nearly as blue as the rest of her family and so droopy behind thick black frames that they could fool you into thinking her sleepy or passive blinked a coat of distress. Her birth defect, an orange stain on the right iris, pulsed in and out of view beneath a sweep of lashes like a swelling clot of blood. There, gone, there, gone. She had no idea how she was going to feed this long baby that was now becoming two. How to feed two babies. Ask your family, the, the doctor advised with a click of his pen. He assumed that the family was speaking of this pregnancy, was speaking, period. His hand flew across her chart. There was little else he could do. The electronic fetal monitor, which would in just a few years bring ultrasound technology to hospitals, was just being invented. See if a predisposition for twins runs in your family. My mother stopped blinking and considered the sobering possibility that her family was still involved, that her mother's knot of tight-lipped fins and her father's band of blustery Swedes clustered across the Pacific Northwest had anything to do with the number of children in her womb. She shook her head, ponytail whipping from side to side. Better to ask Maggie, the short 30-year-old graduate student from Nigeria who loved to talk, who loved children, who came from a country of families, a country where a father would never tell his child, you are dead to me, I no longer have a child. 
My father Magnus was dark and sturdy as teak with a generous mouth and the brown eyes Holly craved in a sea of Nordic blue. The problem was that they had broken up over the summer and he was now in eastern Canada, nearly 3,000 miles away. Twins, finally, Holly finally responded, a raspy whisper. The book slid out of her fingers and tumbled to the scuff linoleum where it lay splayed, spine cracked. The shocking true tale, the cover screamed in lurid, swamp green letters. The silhouette of a man hunched his shoulders against the assault of white America, face hidden in the shadow beneath the title, Black Like Me. There's more to the chapter, but um, it's a bit sobering. So I want to read something a bit funnier. Hmm? Thank you. So this is a little bit of fun stuff in the temple. Generally, the temple's not so fun, but yeah, sure, of course. I, I went back to Harvard. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm stubborn. I, I delivered my findings in the echoing room as, as promised <laughs> and got that applause and redemption, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> so the, the setup in the temple, how many people have been to, like, a Theravada Buddhist temple? Okay. Okay, so they're, like, you have, like, these little individual huts called Guti. Um, and the way this temple was... Um, it was hard to find because people weren't supposed to be stopping by all the time since it was a forest temple. So you had to like hike through these rice paddies and then in the back there, were, um, there was this mountain. There were two like mountain faces and there were caves up on the top and then where the mountain met there was this waterfall that came down and the monks lived on one side, the side that had all the sun and, and in their orange robes and the nuns lived on the shady dreamy side in white with these giant white butterflies. And then the forest was right behind it and the villagers would keep their animals back in the forest. Um, and so we would see them every morning going back and forth deep into the forest with their animals. But we weren't supposed to interact with them. And then periodically, the whole thing would catch on fire. There would be fires, forest fires, as if you live in this area, you know. They would come down, and we would have to fight them at night with a kind of bucket brigade. So, um, and if you know, and one thing you should know about me is I hate nature. So this was a really stupid thing I did. Um, so I hate nature, I had to be in nature, and of course one of the main things, one of the one vows you have to do is take a vow not to kill anything. So we were spending all our time like trying not to kill ants and, and fleas and just everything. Like you had to be on the lookout for everything, not to kill it. And of course I wanted to kill everything. So this is just a little section uh, called Lessons in Lying and Killing for the Black Buddhist Nun. One evening I fall asleep meditating. I wake at 9.30 completely disoriented. My gutti is dark, my contacts are welded to dry eyes, my bladder groans. Groggy and half-blind, I stagger outside to the bathroom. Climbing onto the cement block and placing my feet on the grooved fat foot, foot pads beside the basin, I notice a scattering of black lines in the toilet bowl. I groan, more dead gnats. Day after day, I clap my palms together over the bowl, careful not to disturb the other nuns. I scoop water from a bucket and dribble many waterfalls of warning, begging the gnats to fly away so I can pee without committing sin. I hop from leg to leg, mouthing a prayer of increasing intensity. Hurry up, hurry up, fly away. These gnats that have chosen my toilet are my responsibility, my constant inadvertent sin. Since they're dead already, I suppose it's all right. I wrestle my sarong up over my hips and squat down. Afterwards, I step off the dais and reach for the plastic bowl to ladle water into the basin to flush. As I bend towards the plastic bucket, I hear a swoosh. 
Spinning around, I see a rat, its torso eight inches long, fly out of the toilet bowl exactly where I'd been squatting only seconds before. My groin contracts, the bowl clutters to the floor, a strangled cry escapes my throat. The rat, propelling itself out of the narrow mouth of the toilet, flies in a liquid, glistening arc towards the door it no doubt expects to find open in the great field outdoors. Instead, the door is shut, and with a great thwap, it hits the wood full force and goes berserk. Squealing, the animal flings itself around my tiny bathroom, twisting up, down, and around. Each time it meets resistance and ricochets faster off the walls, the ceiling, the floor. Zoom, zoom, zoom. It flails and shrieks, scattering its foul trail, tail, trail, <laughs> bared teeth slicing within inches of my hair, my face, my throat, my breasts, my belly, my buttocks, my calves, my ankles. Still crouched over the bucket, I'm paralyzed in the midst of the rat's crazed trajectory, a museum thief caught in a high-tech laser web. Even if I had the presence of mind to move out of the way, I have no idea where to go. The rabid rat is moving so quickly, it's everywhere. I hear the crunch of rat muscle and bone against the stone walls, tin ceiling, wooden floor. Somewhere in the recesses of my mind, I know that I can't scream, that nuns who've taken vows of silence don't go hollering and running around half-naked due to small animals. It takes all my concentration to control this novice's body and its stiff white sarong that has chosen this of all moments to start undoing itself. As my skirt slides down my trembling legs, my heart rises so high in my throat it nearly chokes me. I feel a furry whir against my knees and the bucket flips over, leaking water onto the cement floor. Liquid dribbles warm along my inner thigh. Finally, the rat finds a drainage hole in the corner and squeezes through, scurrying out into the black forest. Throwing open the wooden door, I tear down the stone rockway, running off the need to scream, running towards safety. My mind whirls with information, namely that the rat lives in my toilet, in my private little septic tank, that the black lines I've been cleaning up every day are not dead gnats at all, but are in fact rat excrement, that every time I squat down Asian style over the toilet, there's the very real possibility that this typhoid torpedo will come flying up, whoosh, with such force, dot, dot, dot. I'm several yards down the path in the direction of the deep forest when a worse thought bursts, sharp and clear through the half-formed jumble crowding my brain, snakes. Here I'm running from a solitary rat headed straight into the night jungle. I imagine a nest of king cobras coiled in muscular anticipation just inches from my bare feet. I can practically see them rise up and tremble, their shadowy hoods flared, hear them spit and hiss. I pivot and head back towards my gutti, springing up the steps and dragging the door shut tight behind. My hands flutter at the end of my arms until my entire body is shaking like one of those tourist junkies wandered down from the heroin hills. Is it possible to have a heart attack from swallowing screams? I pray for no more opportunities, as the head nun would put it, to overcome my own fears while developing compassion for all living creatures. No more glittering monitor lizards, their razored claws prying loose the wooden planks of my hut. No more glossy fist-sized spiders clinging to the wall above my sleeping mat. No more packs of cave rats swarming over the statues of the Buddha as I try to meditate. Tonight, I have no interest in meeting the challenge of Buddhist practice. Okay, so more questions, comments? Yeah. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I know I've, I've gotten some emails from monks. Um, <laughs> like, what are you doing at the Cyber Cafe, Mr. Monk? Um, so, <laughs> um, so I know that it's read a little bit there, and the Harvard Club in Thailand has asked me to, in Bangkok has asked me to visit and stuff like that. But on the whole, I don't know. I mean, it was never published in Thailand, you know. So, um, and 
I do know that our temple now has a web page. That's it. I've just seen a web page. I don't think they maintain that. I think someone else put up a web page of like forest temples. Um, but I'm not in contact with anyone. And for a long time, I did write to the head nun. Um, but that was a bit difficult. So I don't know if people have read it. You guys were all talkative before I read. <laughs> what went wrong? <laughs> Have I ever done a children's book? I've done just two little, um, I did something for Time Warner, so I did two little textbooks, or book, you know, like the scholastic books they have on uh, contemporary life in Africa. So there was one on living in the city in Nigeria, and one was on a Maasai girl in Kenya, but that's it. So I teach a lot of, uh, like I teach this coming of age around the world, which is a young adult literature class and stuff. So I'm really interested in the whole coming of age and the youth narrator and stuff, but not particularly interested in writing for kids, I don't think. So, and they called my class Crying 101 because I always pick like, oh, here's a narrative by a child soldier. Oh, here's a girl who had her arm cut off. Oh, here's somebody who like blew up in a landmine. I'm like drawn to these stories. So <laughs> I don't think I'd be very good. <laughs> Oh, oh, my mom's books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Oh, gotcha. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Interesting. I've tried to get her to write kids stuff too. She was interested for a while, but that's a hard. That's the hardest um, writing group to break into. I think is children's literature. Strangely enough, everyone wants to do it. Um, it's a pretty tight community, so it's surprisingly difficult. Um, I guess, because I mean, you have to make it simple. Everyone thinks it's easy. Those people who are in aren't going to tell you the secret or something. But yeah, I, yeah. And I think everyone thinks like, oh, it's just simple. Anyone can write for a kid, too. So there are probably too many people doing it. And then those people who do do it, like, you have to have an agent. Yeah, you have, to, what, you have to have a publisher before you can get an agent. In most places, you get an agent, and that gets you a publisher. But here, you have, have already had to make the contact. There has to be interest before you can even get an agent to represent you. So, yeah, that's tough. That's a really good question, is coming of age still significant? I mean, one of the things I look at in the class is how does coming of age in a Western context change? You know, does it apply globally? Because so much of the, li the literature we see about coming of age is like you have a sense of self, and then that sense of self is kind of destroyed. Something bad happens. You leave your house. You go to school, and everyone's like, hey, you're poor. And you're like, what? <laughs> you know, or so, you know, some, there's some sort of trauma, and you're kind of shattered. And then you put yourself back together and you're a little wiser about the way the world works. That tends to be the Western coming of age. In other places, it's like you're of this age and now you can get married. Or you're of this age and now everybody goes out and, you know, kills a lion or goes to the fattening hut or does, the, you know, it's not, it's not about the self at all because what matters is that you're joining the group. 
you know, because these are group-based communal societies. And so a lot of it was, and, and you know, and why I think I had so many international students and it was like, now that we're here, with this growing kind of sense of individuality and figuring out our own kind of rituals and changes, how does that jibe with the way we've been raised in which our family says, okay, now we've all decided you're the eldest, you're the one who's going to you know, med school, you're the one who's gonna do this, this, that. Um, and so I think coming of age still happens, it just happens in a different way. You know? and, then, and then I was asking them to look at what are the rituals we have here that we don't talk about as rituals. You know, how many people had a sweet 16? How many had a quinceanera? How many thought it was a big deal when they got their license? How many, you know, there are things we do do, but we, since we don't have a language of ritual so much, we may not recognize them as of coming of age. So we were really kind of trying to interrogate that. Plus the coming of age is an ongoing process too. It's not just, there's the, there's the thing you realize the first time you go to school, then there's the thing you realize, like maybe when you realize your sexual orientation, that's a different thing too. And then there's, you know, for me, flunking out of college, failing for the first time, came back with a new identity, but that was much older than the other things that happened too. So I think it's an ongoing process too. You don't, you don't skip it. There are a number of things you do. Um, like because I cut this off early, you don't, one of the things that I did do was, I re like in that instance, I researched um, maternity home culture. And so I, you know, I talked to a person who had done like the major study on it, and I read novels about it, and I, I, I got the memos from the actual place where I had been born, and then I created, and then my mom had two little sentences. There were two, two girls she could remember, and so I like, took one of those sentences and I built like a little scene around it and I was like, as I imagine it, my mom would have been over here doing this thing. She would have been the practical one, writing everybody's, you know, addresses, da 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 You know, and everybody else was kind of doing this and I, and I built the scene based on the research and then inserted my mom based on what I knew about her. And then I showed it to her and she's like, and another thing, blah, 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 blah. And then she was like, oh, wait a minute, wait, did this happen? And she said, did I tell you this? And I said, no, you didn't tell me this. And she said, well, if this didn't happen, this is how it should have happened. These are the kinds of things that did happen, and she remembered stuff. And so I wrote that in the memoir too, so I have both my, my fantasy of it, and then her response, and then us going together, because I think that's really interesting, what we're forced to, to unremember, and what we misremember is just as interesting as what we think we remember, and someone else might remember it differently, so I make that part of it, and she helped me along. Other people don't want to be, other family members may not want to star <laughs> in your work and may not want to be forced to examine their lives in that way and so they may say no and so you might have to do an end run around them. Like do the research, ask other people um, and write around the circle. Um, or if you keep on asking a parent something and they keep on giving you a different version every time, that's as interesting too because that's telling you something. You know, or if they keep saying no, so there are just a lot of things you can do, but I think key, key is just researching kind of the social situation so that you know what questions to ask and you know what silences mean. Um, and you know, oftentimes I'll, I'll pull in something, you know, because I, I pulled in a segment from um, Alice McDermott's book about uh, maternity homes, and so I just brought in another character. You know, and this character does this, and it was about the same time, and the issues were about the same too. So there are things you can do.
Does that help? And then it's always just good to make it clear when it's your imagining. So I always say, you know, there's one photo of around this time, and you know, I see my mother looking at this. As I imagine it, she was doing something similar. It's possible it could have been like this, you know. So you make it clear to your reader that this is an act of imagination. And um, I actually have some worksheets on it. Like in one, I'm like using my father's letters. I'm using journalistic research. I'm using imagination. Um, I've got about four or five different things, and I've got them color-coded to create just one kind of seamless thing, but it shows all the different things that go into, um, into coming up with a story and earning the right to imagine, like the, the background you've done to earn the right to imagine something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Right, right. And I, you know, I research my own life, too, because it's like things you think happened at the same time didn't. You've conflated them in your mind. And when you check the timeline, you're like, oh, that, those two actually couldn't have happened at the same time. But I think that's all interesting. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, so memoir is just trying to make sense out of our memories. Uh, it's not the verbatim truth. And everybody, everybody in your family will have a different version anyway, depending on where they were located and what their investment in the story is. And, and what age you are when you write it, too, kind of what, what you need to take from the story. So you just need to do your background, you know, to be as responsible to everybody as you can. And then there's, you know, and even if you do that, you could still not get invited to Thanksgiving. I, mean, I had a friend who just wrote about her, wrote about her family. It was hilarious because her mom is like, she talks about her mom trying to abort her before she was born. Mom has no problem with that, but is really pissed off at the description of her hair. She's like, it was a perm. <laughs> so that's why she won't talk to her. And then her drunken dad is all like, how come I didn't get more space in the book? He's all like, more drunken, abusive dad. Yay. You know, so you never know who's going to get upset by what. So you just got to do what you got to do. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Pardon? Oh, yes, it's a new book that just came out called Family Trouble, Memoirists on the Joys and Hazards of Writing About Family. And so there are a bunch of essays from all of us talking about that. And this is the woman who, this is from the introduction, the woman who put together the anthology. That's her story. So it just came out, Family Trouble. Very cool. Great. Thank you, everyone, for your questions and attention. I want to... Uh, share with you one more excerpt from um, Meeting Fate. We jostled through a countryside as brilliant in its own way as the synthetic interior of the bus. Out the window I watch an interlocking puzzle of green and gold rice paddies broken by jagged purple mountains and lumbering water buffalo. Straw-hatted farmers in dark blue work shirts up to their knees in mud. Roadside juice and noodle stands shaded by heavy boughs heavy boughs of fuchsia and peach bougainvillea. I feel light, light, light. Thank you very much, Faith, for a wonderful journey that has helped us cross many boundaries, but that's what writers are. They always cross boundaries. On behalf of the college community, here's a token of our appreciation. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, and thank you for coming. Next month, we will have another such event, so I hope you can come back. <laughs>